everyone. You're listening to The Katie Helper Show, and I'm your host, Katie Helper. If you like the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. To support the show, visit patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show, where for just $1 a month, you can help make the show happen. And for $5 a month, you'll qualify for great bonus content, including alternative podcast feed and rarely seen clips that aired on our live shows. Hello, and welcome to the Katie Helper Show. Thank you so much for joining us. We are very excited to be talking to Norman Finkelstein, someone who knows so much about this very important issue, who has written books on Gaza, who has written several books. And if you don't know about Norman Finkelstein, you probably do if you're watching this. He's a political scientist, prolific author. He received his PhD from Princeton University Politics Department. He's the author of many books that have been translated into 60 foreign editions, including The Holocaust Industry, Reflections on the Exploitation of Jewish Suffering, Gaza, an inquest into its martyrdom, and I'll burn that bridge when I get to it, heretical thoughts on identity politics, cancel culture, and academic freedom. In the year 2020, Norman Finkelstein was named the fifth most influential political scientist in the world. And before I bring on Norman, make sure you like this stream because it's really important to get the word out. We're talking about Gaza. There's so much misinformation. There's so much Hasbara, Israeli propaganda out there. There's so much ideology that's pretending to be reporting. So like the stream, share it. If you're not already a subscriber, please subscribe. You hit subscribe and then you press the bell. And today we are going to be making everything unpaywalled because it's such an important issue and we want to make sure people have the resource that is Norman Finkelstein. But of course you can, as we always welcome you to do, please become Patreon supporters at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. You can also become YouTube members. And I think that's about it. Next week, we'll have Patreon again. And Patreon, if you don't know, is um, when you are a Patreon at the $1 a month level, you help make the show happen. We couldn't do the show without you. We couldn't pay people without your Patreon support. And when you pay at the $5 a month level, you get extra content, extended interviews, et cetera. So without any further ado, let me bring in Norman Finkelstein. Hi, Norman. How are you? Hi, Katie. Thank you. And just to point out, I asked Katie to not put it behind the Patreon wall as a gesture of solidarity. And she, without hesitation, acquiesced, agreed to it. And the quid pro quo was that I would stay on as long as Katie wants, as long as the audience is interested. I'm very tired. However, I will summon forth the energy to stay on for several hours if the occasion warrants it. You need any coffee? You have any coffee in the house? Or? I don't drink coffee. I drink four mugs of tea every morning, not cups, four mugs of tea to cleanse my system, but I don't drink coffee. Dark chocolate? Do you ever do dark chocolate? Are you a health nut? Let's just say I eat a clean diet which is probably why I've never been to a doctor or in a hospital except once. Are you sure you're Jewish? <laughs> I'll tell you the truth. I, I, you know, we always have family stories. Because my parents were in the concentration camps, 
They were absolutely confident that they can cure any illness. They didn't need doctors. So even once my father came home from work and he had a 106 temperature. My, uh, my father was allergic to penicillin and he was terrified that if he went to a hospital, they would administer penicillin. But that aside, my mother just took charge like a captain on a ship. Go here, go there, go here, go there. So each of the three, myself and my two siblings. And the temperature came down. And here is the Jewish part. The next morning, my father got up at six o'clock and went off to work. Wow. That was the kind of ethic I was raised in. And so I was always, to this day, it's a mixture of my parents and Professor Chomsky, both of whom operate as my super ego. Uh, whenever I'm not working, I am just overwhelmed and overcome with guilt. And lately I've been saying, but Norman, in about 10 years, you'll probably be dead. No, you'll, be, you'll live longer. You have a right to take a break. But then the guilt sets in because that's the Jewish home. You have to work. I work before I am. What are your eating restrictions? Well, I am a vegetarian. Okay. And I also try not to eat any packaged food except chickpeas. My refrigerator is just filled with plastic bags filled with every kind of vegetable or fruit. Nice. Great. Well, you mentioned your parents being in the camps, and I wasn't going to start off the conversation with this, but I can't help but notice how many people are weaponizing the Holocaust to justify their position on what is happening in Gaza right now. And you see people kind of... Um, I would say one side is weaponizing it and one side is turning it into a teachable moment. I was at a protest on Friday with Jews in Brooklyn outside of Chuck Schumer's house, and they had signs like, never again is now, no Jewish apartheid. And then, of course, you have people, including people we'll get to in the show, Israeli officials, very much leaning into the Holocaust to justify their blockade and their collective punishment. But could you share with the audience how your parents' experience influenced your view of this? I would put it at the most general level, which is illustrated by your experience demonstrating in front of Chuck Schumer's home. Namely, there were two kinds of lessons that were learned from the Nazi Holocaust. One lesson was never again implicitly to anyone. And the other lesson was never again to Jews. And my parents fell on the never again side without qualification. I would say a large number of Jews fell on the never again to Jews side. So that just goes to show that the same historical experience can yield very different conclusions. And I would say there's no higher authority who can arbitrate and say one interpretation of the Nazi Holocaust is right and one interpretation is wrong. However, having said that, 
I'm not going to pretend that my parents correctly interpret their experience, whereas people from my generation, like Menachem Begin, the former Israeli prime minister, who was definitely on never again to Jews lesson, I'm not going to arbitrate who's right and who's wrong. However, having said that, we should be clear that one of the components of standard definitions of anti-Semitism is you cannot compare any act Israel commits to the Holocaust. And if you do, you're culpable, you're guilty of anti-Semitism. However, it's never said in that definition that when Israel compares its enemies to the Nazi Holocaust, and you've been hearing a lot of that lately coming out of Israel, the most commonplace you hear is this is the worst act committed against the Jews since the Holocaust. That's permissible under definitions of anti-Semitism. So when you describe the two groups outside Chuck Schumer's home, yes, it's fair, it's legitimate that each should interpret it the way they want. The problem is one group is ipso facto guilty of anti-Semitism by current definitions, whereas the other group is not. If you were to attempt, for example, on a college campus to compare Israel with the Nazis, there are many college campuses now that you'll be sanctioned for that. And former Harvard professor Larry Summers condemned the administration. And this has been going now in the past week, it's been across the United States, where the university administrations are being condemned for not condemning what happened on October 7th. And the claim is this administration took a stand in the Ukraine. This administration, meaning college, this college administration took a stand on Black Lives Matter. And they go through the list, and then they say, you're obligated to take a stand on what happened on October 7th. I would say, fair enough, if you want to be consistent with the past. However, what about what happened on October 8th until today in Gaza? Where is the obligation to also take a stand on that? Nobody says that. Right, of course. But also, wouldn't you say, well, two things I would say. One is, I think that by, if we can call the two groups, let's say group A are the never again for anyone, and group B are the never again for Jews. Mm -hmm. So group B, you're saying, accuses group A of being anti-Semitic, ipso facto, definitionally, right? But you could argue, and I would argue, that group B, in constantly claiming that criticism of Israel is anti-Semitic, and constantly conflating Zionism with Jewishness, they're perpetuating an anti-Semitic trope. Because the people who equate Jews and Zionists are, you know, raging anti-Semites who use the term the Jew and the Zionist interchangeably, and then people like APAC and the ADL. Well, what I would say is, if you insist that every act Israel commits should be defended by Jews, 
that they have an obligation to defend every act committed by Jews because Israel is a Jewish state, then you end up perpetuating the idea that, for example, Jews support, right now you'd have to say, support genocide. If we're obliged, because it's a Jewish state, to defend what's going on now, I don't, to my memory, except when I was a youth, but to my memory in my adult life, I do not recall ever using the term genocide to describe what's going on in the world. I do remember, and you can look at it up later, that Professor Chomsky, during the Vietnam War, in particular at its peak of monstrosity. He didn't join the Vietnam, you mean he joined the protests? Professor Chomsky? Yeah. Oh, he was very active. Right, but you said joined the Vietnam War. Oh, well then I, I misspoke. What I wanted to say was, I recall that during the Vietnam War, when it reached its peak of savagery, I recall he publicly weighed whether or not the word genocide was appropriate to describe what was going on. And he recoiled a little because he's sensitive to language. But on the other hand, he felt the situation warranted it. And so, as I said, he was somewhat equivocal, but certainly leaning towards using it. In the same way, if you have a state now which makes these two statements, the Prime Minister, Netanyahu, he says, we have to prepare for a long war. And then the Defense Minister says, we are cutting off all food, water, electricity, and fuel to Gaza. So if you put those two statements together, they're relatively simple statements. So what the Israeli government is saying is, for a sustained period of time, no food, water, electricity, or fuel will be accessible to the people of Gaza, of which 2 million, the population is roughly 2.1 million, and of whom half, 1 million, are children. Now, for those who are familiar with aspects of the Nazi Holocaust, the figure of 1 million children has a certain sacred quality to it, because the Nazis exterminated 1 million children. Of the 5 to 6 million who were killed, the usual estimate for the number of children killed was 1 million. Now, given what the prime minister and defense minister said, I find it very hard not to use the word genocide to describe what the plan is. Now, it's said that a couple of days ago, Joseph Biden sent a message to Israel that it has to let water in. Now, I'm not sure at this point whether Israel has, so to speak, honored the Biden request, but that's what you might call an amendment 
imposed by the United States. It ordered Israel, you have to let water in. But the actual Israeli plan, as laid out in broad daylight, if that's their plan, and there's no reason to doubt it, as I said, it's in broad daylight, we don't have to look behind closed doors. That's a plan of extermination. And I don't see how any rational person can get around that fact. That is a genocidal plan. Yeah, in fact, we have a clip of the president of Israel making comments, Isaac Herzog. He said this at a press conference. Let's hear what he had to say. Uh, Working, operating militarily according to rules of international law, period, unequivocally. It's an entire nation out there that is responsible. It's not true. This rhetoric about civilians not not aware, not involved, it's absolutely not true. They could have risen up. They could have fought against that evil regime which took over Gaza in a coup d'etat. But we're at war. We are at war. We're at war with at our... We're defending our homes. We're protecting our homes. That's the truth. And then when a nation protects its home, it fights. And we will fight until we break their backbone. So he's saying these civilians had a choice, basically. Yes. His argument is that it's, he's basically admitting it's not a war on Hamas. Well, it's very hard to reconcile several facts. We will get to, in the course of this evening, who bears the burden for what. But let's just take the most elementary arguments and then proceed to more complex ones. So Ken Roth, who was the former head of Human Rights Watch, he wrote an article in The Guardian, and he described Hamas as a military dictatorship. If it is a military dictatorship, can you hold the civilian population accountable for the acts of that military dictatorship. Number two, if what Herzog is saying, if he's being literal, and there's no reason to doubt him being literal, he's holding the 1.1 million children of Gaza accountable and legitimate targets for extermination. Is that a reasonable argument? Let's now look at the other side, because that's the more interesting question, in my opinion. Hamas, we can agree, and I don't have any problem saying it, it is a repressive regime, and there's little room for dissent. However, The same cannot be said about Israel. For the Jewish population in Israel, we're going to leave aside the Palestinian population of Israel. For the Jewish population of Israel, it's a relatively open society. There is a certain amount of dissent that's clearly tolerated. In fact, Amira Haas, the correspondent for Haaretz newspaper, 
It's the most distinguished newspaper. It's not a mass seller, but it's a distinguished newspaper. And Gideon Levy, another columnist for Hamas. Haaretz. 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 Excuse me. Haaretz. I'm sure there are a lot of people in Israel calling him a correspondent for Hamas, though. Yeah. But you didn't mean to do that. Gideon, if you're watching this, forgive me. Both of them wrote quite hard-hitting columns initially when the horror of October 7th became apparent. They wrote pretty hard-hitting columns, and they were allowed to. They were able to. They were able to. So here is the point. Israel has conducted, at least at this point, about a dozen brutal operations against Gaza. The best-known ones are Operation Cast Lead in 2008-9, Operation Protective Edge in 2014. Then there was the assault on the Mavi Marmara, and there are many more, okay? Now, Israel is a democratic society for its Jewish population. If you look at the polls, each and every one of Israel's murderous, operations, which hopefully we'll get to later, were supported by 90% of the population. It's usually about 90, 92% of the population. Okay? So, we can say that Israel's murderous operations against the people of Gaza, which left in the 2008-9 It left 1,200 people dead, 350 of them children, 6,300 homes flattened, the entire infrastructure destroyed. In 2014, Operation Protective Edge, it left 2,200 Palestinians dead, 550 of them children, 18,000 homes destroyed. Now, those operations in an open democratic society were supported by about 90% of the population. By Mr. Herzog's reasoning, certainly if the people of Gaza are held accountable for the actions of a military dictatorship, then the people of Israel must be held accountable for the actions of the democratic government, which it has voted into power. That being the case, now I'm not saying I believe it, but that being the case by President Herzog's standard, everybody who was killed on October 7th, now I know how this is going to be distorted on the web, so I'm going to repeat myself. I am not saying this is my opinion. I am simply applying the logic of President Herzog. If everybody in Gaza is accountable for the actions of a government that's a military dictatorship, then, and therefore, a target of extermination, that's what Mr. Herzog said, 
then everybody, every Israeli who was killed on October 7th must also be a legitimate target by Hamas and whoever else committed those atrocities on October 7th. I don't see if there is an error in my reasoning there. I would be very, actually, I would be very um, um, interested. You have listeners there. I suppose quite a few don't like what I just said. Uh, that's just an exercise in basic logic. What do you think the response would be from the Israeli government if you said it to them? Oh, they would say we were acting in self-defense. That's what they would say. And then I would say, Gaza, you'll allow me just go. I'm going to get to how I would respond at the end. This is going to be a little bit a long excursus. That means that's the fancy word for digression. Very Jewish. <laughs> Thank you. So let's try to go through this expeditiously. And I'll be leaving out some facts, but we'll do our best. The occupation of the Gaza Strip begins in 1967. 70% of the population of Gaza consists of refugees and children and descendants of those refugees. So it's overwhelmingly a refugee population. As we've already established, it's also a child population. And it came under Israeli occupation. Now, here are the basic facts, and I'm going to try to do it quickly. It's actually a complex picture, but I will try to simplify it. Number one, in 2006, there were elections held in the Gaza Strip, the West Bank. The elections were urged upon the Palestinians, not least by then-President Bush. Among others... Jimmy Carter, the former U.S. president, among others, he was a witness to the elections. He pronounced them, and now I'm quoting him, completely honest and fair. It happened, it surprised everybody, including Hamas, but Hamas won the elections, the parliamentary elections. Immediately as the results came in, from these completely honest and fair elections, Israel, followed by the United States and the EU, imposed a brutal blockade on Gaza. That's when Condoleezza Rice said, what we're seeing are the birth pangs of a new democracy. I don't remember that statement. I know she said in 2006, when there was the war in Lebanon, she said, we're seeing the birth pangs of a new Middle East. Now, it's possible she said that what you just called, but I don't recall that statement. In any event, without going into the details, which you know your listeners later on can probe me on, since 2006, there has been this brutal blockade on Gaza. Nobody can go in, nobody can go out with the rarest of exceptions. Gaza is 25 miles long, five miles wide. What does that mean? The five miles wide, if you're a New Yorker, and some of your listeners will probably be New Yorkers, 
Five miles is the distance from NYU to Columbia University. NYU on West 4th Street, Columbia University on 116th Street. That's the width of Gaza. The length of Gaza is 25 miles. It's shorter than a marathon. So if you can picture in your mind a marathon as the length and the width, the distance from NYU to Columbia, that's Gaza. Gaza is among the most densely populated areas in the world. It's more densely populated than Tokyo. The numbers, they vacillate over a period, but as of now, 50% of the people in Gaza are unemployed. Among youth, which is predominantly the folks who broke through the gate, the unemployment rate is 60%. Half the population is classified by international humanitarian organizations as suffering from, I'll use the technical phrase, severe food insecurity. So the picture I just described, that more or less picture, has endured for two decades. The folks who broke through the gate have lived that life of joblessness, hunger, not starvation, hunger, hopelessness, despondency, despair, depression for 20 years. A large part of that population had to endure in the most direct of ways the results of Israel's various murderous operations. Family members killed, homes flattened, and all the rest. Not being able to leave for medical procedures. As I said, with the rarest of exceptions, nobody goes in, nobody goes out. So if you put all those pieces together, those discrete pieces of data, if you put them all together, it's unsurprising that the conservative prime minister of the UK, David Cameron, described Gaza as an open-air prison. One of Israel's eminent sociologists, Baruch Kimmerling, from the Hebrew University, he described Gaza as, quote, the largest concentration camp ever. So I skimmed the surface. Time doesn't allow to do more than that. Now, I put this question to Israel's defenders. They say Israel has the right to self-defense. And therefore, Herzog is in the right when he says we have the right to target everybody in Gaza, every man, woman, and child, we have the right to exterminate them. Because that's what no water, no fuel, no food, and no electricity means. I don't think even Israel's defenders can dispute. Now remember, the last major Israeli operation, Operation 
protective edge lasted 51 days. If this lasts, if what Prime Minister Netanyahu is saying is correct, we're talking about no food, no water, no electricity, and no fuel for a lot more than 51 days. So I think it's hard to dispute that that's not a plan for genocide without trying to be evocative. I'm trying to stick to the facts. So now let's return to the question. If you claim that Israel has the right to self-defense, I would ask, do the Palestinians have the right to free themselves from the largest concentration camp ever? Now, you might say, okay, now we have arguments on both sides. I would have to say no. I would ask your listeners to ask themselves the question, the very simple question. I wrote an article about it with my colleague, comrade, Jamie Stern Weiner. You can find it somewhere in Jacobin. It was in 2018 during the Great March of Return, and the Palestinians tried nonviolently to break the siege. And even human rights organizations were referring to Israel's right of self-defense. I have to say I found that quite appalling. And so I and Jamie Stern Weiner co-authored an article under the title, Do Concentration Camp Guards Have the Right to Self-Defense? To me, maybe because of my family background, I'm a little partisan on this issue. I think that's a rhetorical question. I think the answer is obviously not. I think the occupants, the inmates of a concentration camp have the right to break free. Now, I don't want to go on at such length that you don't have a chance to interact with me. So I will say a few more things and then, okay, they changed the title. Yeah, they did not have the provocative title. I saw a video with that. Okay, that's neither here nor there. Now, my view is that they don't have a right of self-defense. I have to add two points. It's covering a lot of ground, and I want to give you and also listeners an opportunity to interrogate me. The first point is, the claim is, how can they have a right to self-defense if they want to destroy Israel? The factual record shows, I can't go through all of it now, and you'll forgive me if I refer to my book, but I go through it quite carefully, the factual record in my book, Gaza, an inquest into its martyrdom. Hamas was prepared to recognize Israel and to engage in negotiations on the basis of international law. Now, I want to be very careful about this because I'm an old-fashioned leftist who believes that there's no contradiction between my politics and truth. As Antonio Gramsci famously said, the 
Italian Marxists, the truth is revolutionary. And I have abided by that dictum the whole of my adult life and even part of my non-adult life, the belief that there's no contradiction between the two. So there were many statements by Hamas saying it was prepared to settle the conflict on the what's called the two-state settlement. Now, it is true, and I'm not going to, as I said, I'm not out to score points. I'm out to try to give your listeners an accurate picture. It is true that Hamas insisted as part of the two-state settlement it had to include the right of the Palestinian refugees to return to Israel. And I'm perfectly, even though that's legally a correct position, I recognize as a practical matter, it raises serious issues. And the only way to resolve it is to go into negotiations and try to see if you can find a resolution of that issue. So, it is not true that Hamas has been committed from its inception up until today to the destruction of the state of Israel. That is, and I think there is a wealth of documentary evidence to support it, that is a factually incorrect statement. So then I think that argument has been tentatively answered by myself, but you could check the documentation and, you know, argue with me. The second point is, and this is a much touchier question, if Israel claims a right to self-defense, you say the Palestinians have the right to liberate themselves from a concentration camp. However, the obvious response is, well, when they liberate themselves, they went on a, as Amir Haas said, on an orgy of violence. I'm not going to dispute that. And I will confess to you, I'll speak candidly to you, that when the events of October 7th occurred, initially, you will recall, it was very unclear what happened. We knew there was a breakthrough in the fence. We knew civilians had been killed. The numbers were put at approximately 50 on the first day. We didn't know if Israel had exaggerated that figure, but there was clearly a significant number of people killed. From that moment, and then thereafter, when more information became available, I would say, honestly, I was very torn about what verdict to render on these events. I want to distinguish for you listeners, there's the factual side, what exactly happened. And by the second or third day, it was clear something horrendous had happened. In other words, not just breaking through the fence. Yes, there was, as Amira Ha said, an orgy of violence. There's no question about that. So the factual side, obviously, we don't know all the details, and there are a lot of details to know. Whether that was an order by Hamas or whether the militants went mad, you know, they're settling a score. How many were Hamas? How many were other people who broke through the fence and just decided to exact revenge? 
We don't know the details, but we know enough. Okay? And we're not going to argue that. I'm not going to try to find extenuations in the facts. I will accept, as I said, an atrocity of significant magnitude occurred. That's a factual question. But then comes the more complicated question. It's the moral judgment. And here I will acknowledge my fallibility. I have over the whole of my adult life, since June 1982, I've invested myself in the Israel-Palestine conflict. And now as I look back, my life is coming to an end. It's on, you know, I'm on the downside of the curve after midnight. And it was a huge investment of my life. I'm not trying to be a martyr about it. I'm just being factual about it. In a kind of division of labor developed between myself and Professor Chomsky, it wasn't formalized, but informally it was there. Namely, I was a very conscientious, fastidious, assiduous researcher. I collected the evidence to make the case, but I always deferred to Professor Chomsky for the moral judgment. Professor Chomsky was, besides 10,000 other disciplines, he was steeped in moral philosophy, and also not just the Western tradition, in the Hebrew tradition. His father was a famous Hebraist, so I attached a huge amount of weight to his moral judgment. Number one, because of his sheer immersion in all of the relevant moral precepts and philosophical depth, not just precepts, and also because he's clearly a very morally serious person. Chomsky is incapable, he's constitutionally incapable of a morally trivial statement. It's not possible. No, I'm very serious about that. He takes his life's calling very serious. So I always defer to his judgment for reasons not worth delaying ourselves with now. I was not able to defer to his judgment. It wasn't available at this moment. And so you'll forgive the drama. I was left to my own devices. And I really didn't know how to proceed. We were talking about when? October 7th, 8th, 9th. I was on my own. And I knew, at the risk of sounding boastful, and it really is not boastful, I knew that many people were awaiting my judgment. And I was quite nervous about what to say. I didn't fear the consequences of what I would say. You just want to get it right. Thank you. Exactly. I wanted to get it right. And I didn't know which way to turn. A part of me, a voice inside, was what would my parents say? And I'm pretty clear on what they would say, but I can't prove it because they've passed. What do you think they would say? They would not condemn the Palestinians. They were in a concentration camp. My father was in Auschwitz. My mother was in Majdanek. They would never condemn people who were consigned and confined into a concentration camp. In fact, 
let's be clear, they were born into that concentration camp called Gaza. My parents had beautiful lives in their youth, which made what happened 10,000 times more painful. That's another story for another day. So I have no doubt they would be ashamed to condemn the people. Will they be happy with what happened? No. Will they inside be tormented? Yes. Would they condemn it? No. 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 A thousand times, no. I knew my parents. They would be ashamed to condemn it. I know that sounds very counterintuitive to say they would be ashamed to condemn it, whereas everybody expects they would be ashamed not to condemn it. No. I'm pretty confident of that. I have two siblings. They'll probably hear this broadcast. I don't think they would disagree with me on that point. However, that wasn't sufficient for me. My parents had good moral judgment. However, it was not a moral judgment that was honed in confrontation with all of the moral, philosophical literature. They were faithful, right? As I've heard you describe them in other interviews to the Soviet Union, for instance. Yes, they were absolutely faithful, but they didn't attend to the minutia of philosophy. Sure. They had a gut reaction, and they were very confident in their gut reaction. So I was faced with a dilemma, and then I thought to myself, let's go see what the abolitionists the white abolitionists had to say after Nat Turner's rebellion. I have in recent times read quite a lot of Frederick Douglass and W.E.B. Du Bois. And both Douglass and Du Bois held the white abolitionists, the best known being Charles Sumner, Wendell Phillips, William Lloyd Garrison, but there were many others, Garrett Smith, but the three are the most well-known. And if you read Douglas's works and you read Du Bois's work, they speak about these white abolitionists as if you were speaking about a deity. They held them in such high regard, such high esteem. And so with that as a Departure point, I went back, I looked at the Nat Turner Rebellion, and then I looked at what was the reaction of William Lloyd Garrison. He was the editor, as I suspect you know, of the famous anti-slave periodical, The Liberator. So first a word about the rebellion itself. Nat Turner it seems he was a very smart guy, like Frederick Douglass. I'm, I'm saying his, just his sheer intellect, it seems to have commanded a lot of respect. He was a slave, of course, but I'm just saying he was known to be very smart. He also happened to have been a crazed religious zealot. Like John Brown. Which I'm going to get to in a moment. Yes, since you said it, I'll just repeat you. Same thing with John Brown. 
both of them believed that God had inspired them to carry out their rebellions and that every act they committed was sanctioned by God. You might call them premature jihadis, Nat Turner and John Brown. Now, when Nat Turner went on the rebellion, according to Stephen Oates, the very respected historian, Nat Turner gave the order to kill all whites, to kill all whites. And they did a pretty good job, if we can use that expression. They killed about three score white men, women, children. It was, to quote Amira Haas, it was an orgy of violence. Those are the bare facts, and your audience can certainly make the obvious comparison with the situation on October 7th. So now, having the bare facts available, the next thing is to turn to what did the abolitionists have to say about Nat Turner and the rebellion, not just about the rebellion itself. William Lloyd Garrison, in The Liberator, he expressed his opinion. Now, I asked you if you can just bring it up on the screen. Sure. You scroll down a little. The beginning is a uh, regard to Bernie Sanders. We can talk about that later if you like. But just keep scrolling down. And I can read it if you want, Norm. Just tell me which part. Here it is. Beginning in what we have so long predicted. I would kindly ask you, the abolitionists were very literate. And so their language is very sophisticated. So in order for your audience to appreciate it, I would be grateful if you read it slowly and let the words sink in. I've already read it at least five times because it was so important to me to see how a moral judgment, a proper moral judgment is formulated. So if you begin with what we have so long predicted. Right, William Lord Garrison. Okay. What we have so long predicted at the peril of being stigmatized as an alarmist and disclaimer, has commenced its fulfillment. The first step of the earthquake, which is ultimately to shake down the fabric of oppression, leaving not one stone upon another, has been made. The first drops of blood, which are but the prelude to a deluge from the gathering clouds, have fallen. The first flash of lightning, which is to smite and consume, has been felt. The first wailings of bereavement, which is to clothe the earth in sackcloth, have broken up our ears. The crime of oppression is national. The South is only the agent in this guilty traffic. But remember, the same causes are at work, which must inevitably produce the same effects. And when the contest shall have again begun, it must be again a war of extermination. In the present instance, no quarters have been asked or given. But we have killed and routed them. We can do it again and again. Okay, now just as you're reading it, and you'll excuse me for interrupting you, he's now describing the Israelis after they have inflicted a massacre and another massacre and another massacre. Okay. Go ahead. But we have killed... But we have killed and routed them. We can do it again and again. We are invincible. A dastardly triumph, well becoming a nation of oppressors. Detestable complacency that can think without emotion of the extermination of the blacks. We have the power to kill all. Let us, therefore, 
continue to apply the whip and forge new fetters. In his fury against the revolters, who will remember their wrongs? What will it avail them, though the catalog of their sufferings, dripping with warm blood fresh from their lacerated bodies, be held up to extenuate their conduct? It is enough that the victim were black. That circumstance makes them less precious than the dogs which have been slain in our streets. They were black, brutes pretending to be men, legions of curses upon their memories. They were black. God made them to serve us. Stop for one moment. I would ask your listeners to remember this passage when we hear Naftali Bennett in an interview that you're going to show. They were black. How can you dare deny our right to kill them? Ye patriotic hypocrites, ye panjurists of Frenchmen, Greeks, and Poles, ye Fustian declaimers for liberty, ye valiant sticklers for equal rights among yourselves, ye haters of aristocracy, ye assailants of monarchies, ye Republican nullifiers, ye treasonable disunionists, be dumb, cast no reproach upon the conduct of the slaves, but let your lips and cheeks wear the blisters of condemnation. Yes. He's saying, you praise the heroism of the French. You praise the heroism of the Greeks. You praise the heroism of the Poles. You praise the idea of liberty. And then when it comes to these people, the Blacks, the tune suddenly changes. And they speak out against, or they condemn aristocracy, right, and monarchies. Yes, And now he talks about the attacks on those who defend the black slave. Go ahead. Ye accuse the Pacific friends of emancipation of instigating the slaves to revolt. Take back the charge as a foul slander. The slaves need no incentives at our hands. They will find them in their stripes, in their emaciated bodies, in their ceaseless toil, in their ignorant minds, in every field, in every valley, on every hilltop and mountain, wherever you and your fathers have fought for liberty, in your speeches, your conversations, your celebrations, your pamphlets, your newspapers, voices in the air, sounds from across the ocean, invitations to resistance above, below, around them. What more do they need? Surrounded by such influences and smarting under their newly made wounds, is it wonderful that they should rise to contend, as other heroes have contended, for their lost rights? It is not wonderful. And wonderful in that sense doesn't mean amazing, right? It means surprising, yeah. And bear in mind all the claims that Hamas, they propagandize these people to hate and to kill. And Garrison saying here, they don't need the propaganda. It's their real life experience on a daily basis that's quite sufficient to create their hatred of their oppressors. For ourselves, we are horror-struck at the late tidings. Okay, I want to just stop there for one half moment. Here, Garrison is expressing his horror at the Nat Turner revolt. We are horror-struck at the late tidings. Continue. For ourselves, we are horror-struck at the late tidings. We have exerted our utmost efforts to avert the calamity. We have warned our countrymen of the danger of persisting in their unrighteous conduct. 
We have preached to the slaves the pacific precepts of Jesus Christ. We have appealed to Christians, philanthropists, and patriots for their assistance to accomplish the great work of national redemption through the agency of moral power, of public opinion, of individual duty. How have we been received? We have been threatened, prescribed, vilified, and imprisoned, a laughingstock and a reproach. Do we falter in view of these things? Let time answer. If we have been hitherto urgent and bold and denunciatory in our efforts, hereafter we shall grow vehement and active with the increase of danger. We shall cry in trumpet tones night and day, woe to this guilty land unless she speedily repent of her evil doings. The blood of millions of her sons cries aloud for redress. Immediate emancipation alone can save her from the vengeance of heaven and cancel the debt of ages. And I write at the very end, the last line is mine. It has to be noted, writes Norman Finkelstein, that whereas he stated that the excesses of the slaves could not be justified and he was horror struck at the late tidings, William Lloyd Garrison did not condemn the slave revolt. Yes. So it was not justifiable, but not condemnable. You know, Kate, you read it as I read it, and then you interpret it on your own. I read it as he recognized an atrocity occurred, but he would not. As I said, there is a difference between the factual acknowledgement and the moral judgment. The factual acknowledgement is by any definition of atrocity, an atrocity occurred. That's a factual statement. But there was no moral judgment cast on Nat Turner. Quite the contrary, the moral judgment was cast on those who allow the situation to continue to prolong itself, the enslavement of the African-American people. Now, you have to acknowledge that was an incredibly, an incredibly principled position that Garrison took. He was told, don't go south because you're not going to come back. So when I read that statement by him, my appreciation of the abolitionist soared because there were very few people after October 7th who were willing to say about the Israelis and the Palestinians what Garrison said about the whites and the African-American slaves. It's funny because I'm just going to show, I did not write an essay, an article like you did, but I do want to show these two things that I tweeted related to this, to Nat Turner, because that's kind of where my mind went immediately after this, when I was seeing all these people condemning Hamas and talking about Israelis. I don't think that people get that posting about the deaths of Israelis while having said nothing about the systemic killing of Palestinians is like posting about the deaths of Nat Turner's victims while having said nothing about the violence of slavery. And then I also wrote... If I can just comment on that, yeah. that's exactly what Garrison decried. The hypocrites who shed these crocodile tears for the Israelis and not a word the Palestinians. 
And I also, on a similar note, wrote, imagine condemning Nat Turner, never having condemned slavery. That's every single person who has condemned Hamas and never condemned the blockade. And imagine never having criticized slavery until after you condemn Turner and then pretending that you care about black lives. That's all the gaslighters pretending to care about Palestinian lives who literally never mentioned Gaza, Palestine or Palestinians until after October 7th. And speaking of never mentioning Palestinians, I'm actually going to ask you to respond to someone whose relative you know. That is Amy Schumer. You obviously know her cousin, Chuck. She has had some interesting things to say, and I wanted to show you one of the things that she said. So let's look at this statement that she made, because she was tweeting a lot about Gaza and Israel. So let's, before we show what she said, Brad, let's show the advanced Twitter search that I did. So I did an advanced Twitter search, no results for Palestine or Palestinian or Palestinians or Gaza. So she's never in her life tweeted about them. And yet this is something that she posted on Instagram. First, they came for LGBTQ and I stood up because love is love. Then they came for immigrants and I stood up because families belong together. Then they came for the black community and I stood up because black lives matter. Then they came for me, but I stood alone because I am a Jew. Well, there are two obvious comments. It seems they never came for Palestinians in her list of everybody they came for, which kind of proves the point that they're not worthy of being protected. It's not as if the Palestinian issue is hidden. (laughs) It's not concealed, but it never even occurred to her to include in her list of victims Palestinians. That's the first point. The second is, I think it's a wee bit of an exaggeration to say that she stood alone. Amy, Amy, please, I plead with you, try to get out of your navel. I know how hard it is, and I recognize that navel-gazing is a activity that's common to many people. But Amy, I don't think anyone out there didn't condemn. Yeah, she stood alone with every single politician, every single media figure. Even every single edifice. The White House was lit up in blue and white. A famous arcade in Germany was lit up in blue and white. And this solipsistic navel-gazing, self-absorbed person. Schumer, a Schumer. Thinks that she is so heroic, so courageous, so brave, standing alone for the Jews. It's so pitiful. It's so pitiful. You're alone, Amy. You're alone. You're about as alone as a person standing at Times Square on New Year's Eve. You're alone. It's just, it's, it's wretched. Well, the reason it's wretched is it would be one thing if it kind of stopped there. It's just a self-absorption. But it's a self-absorption that is used to stop any conversation about what is now being done in the name of Jews. What she did was... She went through every liberal issue, LGBTQ, Blacks, immigrants. She went through every liberal issue, which kind of gave her hand away 
the Palestinians are not a liberal issue. Now, I would say I have to be careful about that. We're having a serious conversation, and we should be attending to all the facts. Probably the only good thing that came out of the wokeness, the woke phenomenon, was wokeness did include the Palestinians as part of its cause. And when you do a balanced judgment on the woke phenomenon, it has to be acknowledged on the credit side of the debit sheet that the Palestine cause did gain a significant salience. But people can be selectively woke. Well, what happened was, as what always happens, the moment of truth. The moment of truth with the wokeness came in 2016 and 20 when they all attacked Bernie Sanders. And now you had another moment of truth. Namely, it's true, Palestine was on the woke agenda. And what happened? First, AOC used her undeserved platform to attack the demonstrators at a demonstration to express her horror and shock at what happened on October 7th. And then, who was the, it was AOC, oh, and Elon Omar. All the focus was on the people who were killed. That's perfectly justified to spotlight the innocents who were killed. But what about using the occasion exactly at the risk of sounding like a broken record, exactly as William Lloyd Garrison did. Read his statement. He used the occasion of Nat Turner's rebellion to indict all those who stood by quietly or passively while the situation or the condition of the slaves was allowed to endure. So there, to me, it's a spotlight on that great tradition of which I feel part and of which the abolitionists is part of my tradition. I remember when Dr. Cornell West was asked to comment, or he himself took the initiative to comment on my book. He said one of the Merits of the book was that Finkelstein, myself, or Brother Norman, as he says, Brother Norman illuminates this whole great tradition that the left has. The abolitionists, the communists, the uh, revolutionaries like Rosa Luxemburg, Antonio Gramsci, and so forth. That whole great tradition, and Cornell West said, how impoverished, how impoverished what passes for leftism is as compared to that great tradition, which I invoked in my book. And that's how I feel when I compare the AOCs, the Elon Omars, to a William Lloyd Garrison. For whom, and let's be clear, it took raw physical courage for Garrison to write something like that. 
did it take any courage, any courage whatsoever, a jot, an iota, for AOC to attack the demonstrators against what was happening in Gaza. For Naomi Klein, I'll acknowledge she subsequently retracted part of her statement, but her initial statement that was published in the Guardian newspaper attacked the demonstrators. And the same thing with Elon Omar. The degree, the magnitude of sheer moral cowardice, and then to carry on like Amy Schumer, poor me. We Jews were all alone. Unlike the 2.2 million people in Gaza who've languished in the concentration camp for two decades. I came up with this term, woke washing. I didn't come up with it for Israel per se, but I did come up with the term woke washing. I should have patented it. But when you use wokedom to cover up actual problematic things. So Israel is like expert at this because they're always pinkwashing, but their general genre is wokewashing. And so people like Amy Schumer are very good at using this language of, of weaponizing solidarity to justify not having any solidarity. And if you demand that she stand or even acknowledge Palestinians, you're not holding space for her to be mourning and you're not showing up. I mean, all this language that is weaponized by people. Same thing in personal lives, you see it. The same thing, people will weaponize language like that just in order to be very bad people. But they hide behind these ideas of boundaries and holding space and triggered. But I know we're having a serious discussion, but I want- I want to just comment on that. I'm listening very carefully to what you're saying. And I'm pondering in my mind that by focusing on the Palestinians, you don't allow for space for our mourning. I'm obviously not saying that. You understand that. I know, I know. We're paraphrasing those who criticize Palestinian defenders. I'm going to say it again, and I know it's going to be sound wearisome and tedious after a while. Go read on your own. I'm speaking now to your listeners. Reread on your own Garrison's statement. Did Garrison give any space for the mourners of the whites who were killed? Did he? Well, answer. I mean, okay, you read it. You're very literate. You're hyper-literate. Did he? He No, he ridiculed them. He ridiculed them. He ridiculed them and he said, I told you so. We warned you this was going to happen. And he mocked them for condemning the aristocracy and monarchy and standing with equal rights. So... I'm going to just say, this, at the risk of sounding emotive, I stand with Garrison. He earned his place in American history. You read Douglas, you read Du Bois. If anybody in any way tries to undermine the commitment they made, Du Bois and Douglas will not brook it. In fact, in one speech, which I quote in my book, Douglas says... And I'm quoting him now. No black person did more for the cause of the slaves than the white abolitionists. You get that? He says no black person did more for them. That's where he puts them. That's where he elevates them. 
And I will say again, they earned it. They earned that place and their judgment. As you could see, the prose is pretty sophisticated. These were smart folks. It wasn't the Twitter generation. They knew how to write. And they chose every word because Garrison knew <laughs> this declaration was going to be trouble. He didn't, if I can say it, he didn't shed a tear for the victims of Nat Turner. Not a tear. He said what happened was horrible, but he didn't shed a tear. Now, you might say that's brutal, that's cruel, that's crass, that's callous. And I'll say, and that was William Lloyd Garrison. So now to come full circle, I told you I was lacking in a moral compass on October 7th and the day thereafter. And then when I read Garrison, I had this huge sigh of relief. I was like, okay, now you know how to proceed. Not to focus on Amy Schumer again, but I thought she actually posted, I think her social media is illustrative of a certain perspective that we're seeing. And there's so much Hasbara out there, which is like Israeli, it means examples. Is that what it means, Hasbara? I forget it's what it means. It's probably translated. Explanation? Yeah, explanation. Explanation, explanation yeah. in the sense of propaganda. It's a thin line between explanation and propaganda. So she shared this infographic, Instagram thing. Everyone is asking, what is going to happen to innocent civilians in Gaza? Where can they go? Background info. After the Israeli withdrawal from Gaza in 2005, the terrorist organization Hamas seized power and transformed Gaza into a base for launching rockets indiscriminately at Israel. As a result, both Egypt and Israel decided to tighten security at their borders and control shipping to and from Gaza. The goal of this has been to prevent terrorist infiltrations into both Egypt and Israel and to restrict materials that Hamas could use to create terror tunnels and stockpile weapons. Does that include like chocolate and cinnamon? Well, let's parse the basic information. Should we do the whole thing or one side at a time? I would say just read the first where it says background info. Okay. So let's just start with the first. Can you just read? Sure. After the Israeli withdrawal from Gaza in 2005. Okay, let's, stop. let's just stop there. Now, this is going to... Oh, yeah, this is good. This is going to be a very tedious exercise, but as you know, it's much easier to assert a lie than to debunk it. So let's start. In 2005, Israel did not withdraw from Gaza. It redeployed its troops on the periphery of Gaza. It did empty out its settlers. There were about 7,000, I think is the figure normally given, six to 7,000 settlers. They left. However, every human rights organization, every human rights organization, and every UN body, including, by the way, Israel's senior expert in international law, Yoram Dinstein, D-I-N-S-T-E-I-N, for those of you who want to check, they all concurred that Israel remains the occupying power in Gaza because Israel controlled what goes in, 
what goes up? Who goes in? Who goes out? Israel controlled the airspace. Israel controlled the adjacent waters. Under those circumstances, the consensus of human rights organizations is that the, the occupation of Gaza continued after Israel redeployed its troops on the border. Go ahead. Now the second half. After the Israeli withdrawal from Gaza in 2005, the terrorist organization Hamas seized power and transformed Gaza into a base for launching rockets indiscriminately at Israel. Okay. Now, that expression, the terrorist organization Hamas seized power, what actually happened? Again, these are not controversial statements I'm about to make. They are pro they are exhaustively documented. I already referred to it. How did Hamas come to power? It won an election. In 2006, a completely honest and fair election yielded the result that Hamas won. Did the people of Gaza vote for Hamas because it was a terrorist organization? All the evidence shows the Palestinian Authority, the U.S.-Israeli-backed government in Gaza, in in the whole of the occupied territories, it was profoundly corrupt. And the Palestinians were hoping that Hamas, which did have a reputation back then for being honest, lived simple lives. And they had all these social services, right, that they would provide? Yeah, the social services, yeah, that's an excellent point. They had all the social services. I met Dr. Rantisi, who was the head of Hamas. I can't even remember which year. Sometime probably around 2003. Now, he had blood in his hands. There's no question about that. But if you went to his home, he lived in the very simple, you would call the equivalent of a tenement. Now, I'll give you an example. I mean, what came to my mind was, if you ever saw the Jackie Gleason show, The Honeymooners, remember the show that Jackie Gleason and Jane Meadows, the house, they, the apartment lived in? Mm-hmm. Uh, that was how Rantisi lived. He was soon thereafter assassinated by Israel. I'm not going to say anything positive or negative about him. I'm going to just try to be objective. But he lived very simply. That was Hamas's reputation. And that's why they were elected into power. So it wasn't a terrorist organization seized control. Uh, Then in 2007, the United States and Israel and elements of the Palestinian Authority attempted to engineer a coup to unseat Hamas. And at that point, by the way, it's quite funny because the most authoritative article in that coup, you know where it was published? You'll laugh by a fellow named David Rose in Vanity Fair. Don't ask me how that ever happened. That article was so incongruous with that magazine. In any event, Hamas then consolidated power. It preempted the coup attempt, and it came to power. Now, what Amy Schumer leaves out is the many statements Hamas made at that time trying to resolve the conflict. As I said, there was the stickler of the refugees. But there were real attempts to try 
to, uh, including ones quoted by uh, Jimmy Carter. Uh, he he had contacts with them, and he quoted their uh, forthcomingness. And Jimmy Carter was nobody's fool. Let's be clear about that. He was an extremely smart guy. I would say he's probably it was a toss-up between him and Bill Clinton. Clinton had a voracious intellectual appetite, read very randomly, not systematically. Carter was a stickler for detail. His grasp of detail was terrifying, really. It's just quite amazing. So when he recounts his exchanges with Hamas, you can count on the fact that they're real. They, were, they had substance to them. So now, as to the rocket attacks, there's been a lot of study of them. And the studies show that overwhelmingly, it was Israel that initiated the rocket attacks and that Hamas was reacting. Now, there are studies that were done, believe it or not, by MIT professors for the National Academy of Sciences. And they analyzed all the data. Those of you who doubt me, you can look at my book or just email me. I'll be happy. I have, a, I shouldn't say this on the air, but I will give you access to the book and you can judge it for yourself. And everything is very carefully documented. Now, Ms. Schumer, if I may, speaking to you, even though you're not present, let's take one example. So, in June, 2000, June 2008, in June 2008, there was a ceasefire agreement between Israel and Hamas. And by every account, by every account, the ceasefire held up for six months until November 4th, 2008. Now, you might recall November 4th was election day, and that was the day that Barack Obama became president of the United States. So all attention was shifted away from the world, and all the spotlight was in our presidential election and its result. What did Israel do? It did what it always does. It waited for the right moment and then killed some militants in Gaza, some Hamas militants. It could have also been Islamic Jihadi, but I'm not sure. It killed militants in Gaza, all right? Then Hamas retaliated. Everybody, go back and look at Amnesty International. Everybody agrees. The ceasefire broke down on that date, and it was Israel who initiated the attack. Now, here's an interesting question. Why did Israel initiate the attack? Why did it want a breakdown in the ceasefire? And here, the record is also very clear. You might ask yourself, well, that doesn't make sense. Why does Israel want Hamas to fire rockets at it? And really... It doesn't seem to make sense. I will say, on the surface, what I'm saying sounds very implausible. Why, if there was a ceasefire, did Israel want the ceasefire to break down? And 
If you go back, and I exhaustively document it, because at that time, Israel was not worried about world opinion. The problems with public opinion set in after Operation Cast Lead with the Goldstone Report, and I can get to that later. But at that point, they were very candid. Actually, they were like they are now. Right now, Israel is saying the most you know, outrageous statements. We're not going to let in any water. We're going to destroy everything in Gaza. Herzog, everybody is a legitimate target. That's how they were in 2008. Now, in answer to the question, why did Israel attack? The answer was, Israel suffered a major defeat in Lebanon. They wanted to reestablish their deterrence. Yes. I read your books. Okay, I'm going to get an A on that quiz. And full credit. Yes, they wanted to reestablish their, what they call deterrence capacity, which simply is the technical term for the Arab world's fear of Israel. And they were very concerned that after the 2006 Lebanon war, the third, what uh, the head of Hezbollah called the divine victory, the 34-day war, and uh, the head of Hezbollah, uh, Saad Nasrallah, he mocked Israel, and he mocked its fighting capacity. And he was very public about it. After that victory, the quote-unquote divine victory, uh, Nasrallah became a person of large stature in the Arab Muslim world. That stature was significantly undermined uh, when he sided with Syria uh, later on. But at that point, he had, he was, his stature was very high. And he was mocking Israel, its fighting capacity. He called Israel a spider's web you know, falls apart, just blow on it. So Israel wanted to restore its deterrence capacity, and it shows Gaza as the target. Now, you compare that reality with how Amy Schumer describes it. If you want to continue, I feel very competent to answer each allegation uh, and that's going to be up to you and up to your audience. Well, why don't we, let me just go through them quickly and anything that you think is particularly important to debunk. Well, unfortunately, as you can imagine, my mind is Gaza saturated and I don't want to lose your audience. So you decide. All right. So I know what I want to go to. Both Egypt and Israel decide to tighten security at their borders and control shipping to and from Gaza. The goal of this has been to prevent terrorist infiltrations. This is easily debunkable because they didn't let in things that are not dangerous. Right. They were very honest about what they were doing. They wanted to create a humanitarian crisis in Gaza so as to compel the people of Gaza to overthrow their government. Now, as an American, you're, of course, familiar with that. So when Salvador Allende was elected with a popular unity government in Chile, Unidad Popular, Henry Kissinger famously said, and now I'm quoting him now, we're going to, he didn't use the expression, turn the screws, but make the economy scream. And it succeeded. It created enough discontent that Pinochet was able, with 
some popular support. Even though I'm not going to go into the technicalities now, we're talking about a half year ago. The second election, they got more support than they did the first time, the popular unity. However, by the time of the second election, the society was very polarized. And so there was enough of a mass base, especially among the middle class, to justify, quote unquote, justify the coup. And the United States did the exact same thing with the Sandinistas in Nicaragua, impose enough of a blockade, the same thing they did before the Sandinistas in Nicaragua with Cuba, to try via a blockade and 10,000 forms of sanctions to get the civil society, the population, to revolt. I got another one. Ready? This is a good one. Israel's stance. Israel wants to evacuate. And the reason I'm doing this is because just within these things, we have a lot of talking points. So Israel wants to evacuate as many innocent civilians from Gaza as possible. Why? Israel intends to minimize civilian casualties. Hamas intentionally embeds itself within the civilian areas, making it exceptionally difficult for Israel to target them without harming civilians. Israel often refrains from striking Hamas targets like hospitals and schools where it knows Hamas is hiding or holding weapons. The IDF routinely warns civilians to evacuate before it bombs and gives locals detailed instructions on how to evacuate. Okay, I'm going to just stop you there. Here, we're at a point where, as I said to you earlier, there are several levels of judgment. There's a factual judgment, you know, factual level, who's telling the truth, who's not. And then there's a moral judgment. And these are discrete concerns. I dare say, and I know this is going to sound like a boast, there's nobody on God's earth, I'm saying it literally, there's nobody on God's earth who's read more human rights reports on the occupied Palestinian territories than I have. Now, I don't consider that the most (laughs) impressive credential And going to my death, I have to say that it causes me to wonder whether I made the most fruitful, productive use of my life, because literally, I'm I'm being very serious now. I would say of the last 40 years of my life, about 80% was devoted to reading human rights reports, not once, not twice. I read most of them around three times. So I can say with a certain amount of certitude that the statements I'm going to make to you now have a lot of documentary authority. They command a lot of documentary authority. If you take the case of the human shielding, you go back and you look, for example, I'm taking one example, there are many. If you take the case of human shielding, Amnesty International, after Operation Cast Lead, put out an extensive report. It was titled 22 Days of Death and Destruction. And They looked at the question of human shielding because that came up already in 2008. A huge talking point. Yeah, it was a huge talking point. And still is. Amnesty International found that there was no evidence that Hamas had engaged in human shielding. However, that's only half the story. The other half of it is there was extensive evidence that Israel engaged in human shielding. It forced Palestinians to sit by tanks and artillery as they were fired. It walked Palestinians 
and fired from the shoulders of Palestinians. It stood in windows, it puts the Palestinians in windows and fired behind them. So Ms. Schumer is twice wrong. There was no evidence on the strict issue of human shielding that Hamas engaged in it. There is a lot of evidence that Israel engaged in it. Um, human shielding is a narrow term. I should say it's a term of art. It doesn't have like a scientific precision, but it usually means when you conscript a civilian to commit an unwanted act in the course of war. Is there evidence that Hamas fired weapons? It's a, it's a separate issue in the human rights literature, though I acknowledge these are not scientifically precise terms. Did Hamas fire from areas which were densely populated? And the answer is yes. However, in general, there was nowhere. This is Gaza. Yeah, it's a very dense place. There wasn't a place to fire from. And I'm not going to go into all the technical points uh, because there are so many gradations in my book, I go through each gradation one by one to cover all possible challenges. Now, the evidence is overwhelming. In fact, I would say the evidence was shocking of Israel's targeting, not just of hospitals where there were no militants present, but what was particularly appalling was the targeting of the ambulances. Now, I will give you an example of what this targeting looked like. Israel would target a civilian home, no evidence that there were any Hamas militants present in the home. The home is... Uh, struck, people run out, and when they run out, they call the ambulance. Israel waits for the ambulance to come and then fires rockets at the ambulance. Now, I'm going to tell you as a side note, um, and it is relevant. It's a personal note. It may sound self-indulgent, but it really isn't. And I hope you'll believe me. Come 2020, I had given up on the Palestine cause. I had devoted 40 years to it. I'm at the, I'm past midnight. And I wanted to look into different areas of intellectual inquiry and I felt the cause was lost. So I had written, my last book was called I Accuse. And it was this very minute legal analysis of a particular episode in the conflict. And it sold, I'm not proud to say it, it sold 374 copies 
half of which I purchased because I wanted to give it to members of the International Criminal Court because there was a case pending. It was very embarrassing. My publisher even said to me, Norman, you know how many copies this book sold? Now, I had paid for a lot of that book on my own. I paid for a lot of it on my own because I thought it can do something at the ICC, the International Criminal Court. Or Caucasian Court, as you call it. Yeah. And then I was working in another study, which was even more minute. And I said to myself, Norman, what are you doing? Nobody's listening. Nobody cares about the details. The cause is lost. You're wasting your life. You're frittering away the last years of your life. This is stupid. So I gave up. And there were people who were close to me, like my friend Sana Kasim, a very brilliant Palestinian woman. She was my webmaster. She's a chemist, an extraordinary human being. And she would say to me, Norman, you're not posting anything on Gaza anymore. Norman. And I didn't have the heart to acknowledge it. So I would say, if you have anything to post, just post it. You know, we are comrades in the struggle, and the website's as much yours as mine. Just do it. But I really did give up. I walked away. And then, when the current round began... This round? Yeah, October 7th. I myself had to refresh my memory. And so I sat down to reread my own book. And then you know what happened? All the rage and anger start to seethe in me again and start to well up. All the lies, the perfidies, the betrayals by everyone, including Kenneth, Ken Roth, including Banky Moon, including a large number of UN bodies, all the lies, the perfidy, the betrayal, and then the horrors, the horrors that were inflicted nonstop, not without a pause on the people of Gaza. And so all those feelings came back again. And two things came to mind. Number one, I said to myself, now I know why Garrison didn't say a single word of sympathy for the whites, because he saw the slaves, the degradation, the humiliation, the laceration, he saw it every day of his life. You know, no, you're not going to get any sympathy from me. And I understood now why I found, it, I found myself physically, constitutionally incapable of expressing any sympathy, which was the sine qua non, the prerequisite for being part of the quote-unquote conversation. You know, I couldn't do it. And uh, so there was 
there and the other thing the other thing was it 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 sort of dawned on me all of a sudden it dawned on me those folks in Gaza who broke out it was easy for me to imagine it was almost like from a bad movie the night before October 6 they went to the mother hugged her and kissed her they went to the father hugged him and kissed him because they knew it was their last day on God's earth they would never return once they broke out we know Israel was going to track down every one of them so part of them they said I'm going to revenge the 20 years of my life that I was confined and consigned to this concentration camp those wasted years my childhood my youth and now my adulthood with no future no past no present and the other part of them they said my sister who was killed my brother who was killed my aunt my uncle my nephew my cousin tomorrow i will avenge every one of those deaths and when i started to reread in my book the descriptions each one of which when i was writing the book my whole innards arrived i can't tell you you can't imagine no really you can't i still remember sitting in a bus reading the descriptions of the horrors inflicted not by human rights organizations not by quote unquote arab sources the most damning the most damning descriptions of what happened during those operations they came from the israeli soldiers go back and read i'll give you the title slowly breaking the silence read their all they did was report what the soldiers told them during operation protective edge so it's going to be roughly 2014 or 2015 i won't comment further read it yourself i couldn't bear it i was sitting in a bus and i just wanted to rip myself apart or i was being ripped apart reading it and bear in mind these soldiers were not peaceniks not at all they expressed no regrets there was only one soldier in the 201 pages that's what my memory tells me i think it's right only one soldier in the 201 pages who expressed any regret they were just matter of fact they were just matter of fact you know so was i shocked that what happened on 2000 on october 7th no no i remember 
I want to ask my mother, how did you feel when you heard that um, large numbers of German civilians were being killed during the terror bombing of Germany? Um, it's often forgotten. I'm not saying this in any extenuation. I'm just speaking again factually. The estimates are about 27 million Russians were killed, about I guess they've lowered the figure. They're now saying 20 million Chinese were killed. The Japanese were absolutely ruthless. Monsters. Monsters. Um, and they killed about 20 million Chinese. In my day, the figure was 25 million, but I'm told it's been lowered. And the third largest figure was Germans. Nine million Germans were killed. So a large number of Germans were killed, overwhelmingly, obviously, civilians. It was carpet bombing. It was terror bombing. They wanted to force the Germans to submit by terrorizing them into defeat. Again, I'm not passing any judgments, I'm just stating it. And I remember asking my mother, how did she feel? And she said, now my mother was a very humane person. If I have humane impulses, they, they came from her. She just looked at me and she said, our feeling was if we are going to die, we're going to take some of them with us. She said it very flatly, unapologetically, but with no bravado. If we're going to die, we're going to take some of them with us. And guess what? On October 7th, that's what those folks who burst through the gates of Gaza did. If we're going to die, they knew it was their last night, last day. We're going to take some of them with us. Is it right? Is it wrong? I'm not passing judgment. I refuse. I won't. It's made me persona non grata, as I told you, even though my book is actually the only book on the political aspect of Gaza. There's Sarah Roy's classic, The Dedevelopment of Gaza, which is a very narrowly focused economic book. And I focused on the politics. With the exception of, of all places, Jimmy Dore, and believe it or not, the daughter of, what's his name, Jordan Peterson? Oh, yeah. His daughter has a show. I didn't know that. Okay. Yeah. Did they invite you on to attack you? No. She had me on. Apparently, it's a relatively light show. You get my point. She had me on. Now, the program is supposed to air tomorrow. Ah. She just sat me down and she said, tell us the history. Wow. Maybe she hates her dad because he's a very... No, no, I don't think so. ...dad on, on this issue. She just said, tell me the history. Now, I don't know if she'll air it, but I just went through the history. And then Chris Hedges had me on. With those exceptions, nobody's had me on. And I suspect the reason was that, as in a number of other issues, Ukraine, at the beginning when I was the only one who said, I think Russia had the right to attack. And then, I'm speaking now very recent history, and then Ibram X. Kendi, who I destroyed in my book, and nobody wanted to hear from that either, until he imploded at his so-called anti-racist center. And now with this, I refuse to 
sharing what was the sine qua non to be part of all of the respectful discourse. And my excuse is very simple. The difference is twofold. One, what my parents endured. And two, unlike everybody else, and I'm going to use the word everybody else, I devoted 40 years to reading about what was done to that place. And there was no way I can issue any condemnation after what I knew and what my what happened after my memory was refreshed. I was sitting in a restaurant. I didn't want to read at home because I knew I would start agonizing and pacing and doing anything not to continue. And I just sat there and my innards were just writhing. These sacks of shit. These consummate, colossal sacks of shit. After the Mavi Marmara, the humanitarian vessel that was attacked in international waters by Israel, there was a quote-unquote UN investigation. And you know what the UN investigation it was commissioned by Ban Ki-moon. You know what it concluded? It condemned, I wonder if I could find it, because it's so unbelievable. It's so unbelievable. Let me see if I can find it. Okay. These things, you can't make them up. That's the thing. They are so, they condemned the people on the boat. Now listen to why. By the way, they were bringing goods in across the blockade. Of humanity. Yeah, I forget. It's already a long time ago. It's, <laughs> believe it or not, it's 13 years ago. It was May 31st, 2010. So this is, I'm going to just quote myself. It condemned the people on the flotilla, it was called a flotilla, because it discovered that they intended not only to deliver humanitarian relief, but also, quote, to generate publicity about the situation in Gaza, unquote. To clinch its argument, the panel, the UN panel, reproduced with a great flourish this document prepared by the organizers of the flotilla. So they quote the document. Now listen to this incriminating evidence. The flotilla was bringing humanitarian aid to people trapped in the concentration camp. And now listen to the incriminating evidence. A document was discovered that said, the purposes of this journey are to create an awareness amongst world public and international organizations on the inhumane and unjust embargo and on Palestine and to contribute to end this embargo, which clearly violates human rights and delivering humanitarian relief to the Palestinians. That's the incriminating document. To which I write, if this statement of intent 
weren't incriminating enough, the UN panel laid out yet more evidence of the sinister and nefarious plot. Quote, the number of journalists embarked on the ships gives further power to the conclusion that the flotilla's primary purpose was, brace yourself, to generate publicity about the blockade. And to which I comment, it must be a first and surely marks a nader, the low point in the annals of the United Nations that a report bearing its, meaning the UN's imprimatur, vilify the victims of a murderous assault by Israel because they sought to cast light on an ongoing crime against humanity. This is a UN report. That's really disgusting. And kind of unbelievable. It's beyond words. Seven people in the end were killed on the boat, and now they condemn the people on the boat because they were trying to publicize a crime against humanity. That's so disgusting. Well, there's one more thing I want us to react to because this is another major talking point. You already demolished the idea that they don't target hospitals and stuff like that, which anyone who opens their eyes knows that. Okay. So here is what this other, and this is Amy Schumer sharing a social media thing from this woman, Rachel Ray Kay, but she's obviously endorsing this view and sharing it. Praying for safety. The vast majority of Israeli society, including myself and everyone I know, sincerely hopes for the safety of all innocent civilians in Gaza and is root. Is she Israeli? Yeah, this woman is. The woman who thinks she's sharing it. Or I think she's an American living in Israel. We are in an impossible position. We want our government and military to do whatever it needs to do in order to bring back our brothers and sisters in captivity and eliminate the barbaric Hamas regime both for our sakes and for the sake of its own people, which it oppresses. We can never, ever allow for such an atrocity to happen again, and the only way to achieve that is to end Hamas entirely. We are worried sick for our friends and family, called to serve, many of whom may have to go into Gaza at some point in this war. We simultaneously hold the innocent civilians of Gaza in our hearts and pray for their safety. Well. There would have been an easy way to prevent what happened. Do you remember William Lloyd Garrison's last line? He put in bold, in all caps, immediate emancipation? Yeah. How about immediate lifting of the blockade? You know, already Richard Goldstone, in his report on, in his human rights investigation of Operation Castlet, already back then, he described the blockade of Gaza as a possible crime against humanity. Talking about 2010, 13 years ago, 
it was already recognized as a crime against humanity. Where was the international community? Now, I'm not sure if I should end on a negative note because I understand we're coming to an end here, but I respect Bernie Sanders. I know where he's coming from, and I have, I think for everybody, you have to have a balanced picture. Uh, Frederick Douglass, there were many things about him not to admire. I recently did a three-hour interview with Cornell West, uh, who was just a titanic intellect. I was really kind of, I was very humbled, to tell you the truth. I wrote to him last night. I said that um, I wish I had become, he was in graduate school at the same time as me. He was in the philosophy department. I was in the political science department. I said, I wish I had become friends with you because I would have benefited so much from your intellect and just your presence. I said, although it would have been a mortifying assault to my ego because you're obviously so much smarter. It's just really. I think you both are pretty smart. Oh, no, no. He's weak, and I have no problem admitting it. I'm actually happy to admit it. Uh, in any event, uh, we both, during the interview, we talked about Douglas and um, the second half of his life after emancipation. He really wasn't terrific. And, and Cornell went into great depth about Douglas's quote unquote, I'm using my term now, betrayals. So, Nonetheless, as Cornell said, he's simply a titanic figure in American history. Um, and I say the same thing with Bernie Sanders. I, I want a balance. You know, I, I think you have to make a balanced judgment of his life and his career. I'm not prepared to paint him in broad strokes. Um, but no but. And no but. Uh, he issued a statement the other day. He called it his second statement on the situation in Gaza. And the gist of this second statement was everybody was working to end the blockade and we were doing so well and then along comes Hamas to F everything up. And I wrote in reply, here's a reality check. Nobody was doing anything. I know. When all these innocent people were killed also? Well, you know, factually speaking, during Operation Cast Lead, there was a huge outpouring of opposition. During the Great March of Return, when Israel, according to human rights organizations, were targeting children, medical personnel, journalists, and people with disabilities, nobody did anything. And then the last few years, what was happening? The last few years, we just taped the, the week before. All the talk was that the Biden administration was going to sign an agreement with Israel and Saudi Arabia, uh, bring, normalizing relations, that's the term. And the Palestinians would simply... Let be left to languish and die. Nobody was doing anything. So that was the reality. I'm not for, you know, I'm not, I don't want to score, look, I'm very angry 
not on a personal level, but very angry at the things Bernie Sanders did, in particular Ukraine, and now with Gaza. But this is not a moment to settle scores. It's establishing the historical record. The record was the people of Gaza had been completely abandoned. That's a fact. They had been completely abandoned. And then what were they supposed to do? He said, you don't then have to kill civilians. Okay, they break out. And then what did they do? They could run, right? Well, first of all, that's not going to do anything for the 2.2 million people in Gaza. Number two, you may recall about a year or two ago, there was a jailbreak from one of the prisons in Israel. Three Palestinians. It was either Nablus or uh, Janine. I can't remember which. Uh, there was a jailbreak. And it was like one of these, you know, like the story of the Great Escape. You know, they, they managed to figure out a way to break out. And everybody was very thrilled. Okay? Within 48 hours, they were all tracked down. I think two were killed. Don't quote, quote me on that. You can check. So what did that do? That would have just, it just caused more despair. Here these guys had been working years using their hands to find a way to tunnel out of the prison. They got out and they were tracked down in 48 hours and killed. So if the people in Gaza had broken out as they did on October 7th and just fled, they would have been tracked down with bloodhounds and dead. What were they supposed to do? Get into a firefight with the Israelis? Well, we know who's going to win that firefight. The Israelis are going to bring in their high-tech killing machine, and that would have ended very quickly. What were they supposed to do? And then I looked at Nat Turner. One of Nat Turner's goals was we're going to kill civilians to create such a moral crisis that they would have to confront slavery. In fact, he failed. I mean, that was 1831. It took many more years. And interestingly enough, you know, the year before the Civil War started, Frederick Douglass, you read his last speech before the war, he was completely hopeless. He said, I don't know what we can do. It's hopeless. It turned out not to be hopeless, but bear in mind for those who cry over blood, and I cried over blood, it took 700,000 Americans to end slavery. That's no small number. Probably the greatest line, the greatest line, in my opinion, ever written, full stop, no qualification. The greatest line ever written by a human being was the line written by Abraham Lincoln in his second inaugural address, the last sentence. And this would be a nice way to end our program. If you can bring up the second, just do Abraham Lincoln, second inaugural. It's very short. Well, I get that. Did you hear that an Israeli woman who was captured says that Israelis shot some of the captives? 
You mean shot some of the captives in Gaza? Yeah, near the, um, this is from Electronic Intifada. Israeli forces shot their own civilians, kibbutz survivor says. I don't know. You know, okay. Yeah. Something horrible happened on October 7th. Now, the details are going to clarify, if we ever learn the details, it's going to add, you know, the common word is, it's going to add nuance. But the overall picture is clear. And I think we should try to understand the overall picture and not hope that there's going to be something redemptive and Israel killed one hostage here or there. It's not going to change the big picture. No, it's not redemptive, but I think that it underlies how, as the the indiscriminate bombings, how this is so clearly not about protecting or saving anyone's life. No, I think it's a combination of revenge. And, um, you know, when 9-11 happened, the first reaction of Bush, Cheney, Rumsfeld, was sadness and tears. And after about three minutes... They rubbed their hands and they decided, what are we going to do next? But now we have an opportunity. And they immediately grabbed all of the plans they had to get rid of Saddam Hussein. So they used the crisis as an opportunity. And now Israel is using the crisis to exact revenge, which was true in 9-11 too, and also to carry out long-term plans to, quote-unquote, solve the Gaza question by a mass explosion. In any event, if we look at the second, or just scroll down to the very end, just read this line. Remember, this is the 19th century, pre-Twitter, people knew how to write English. This line, yet if God wills. Read it slowly and with drama. This is your, your moment. Yet, if God wills, apparently had a squeaky voice, Lincoln, but anyway. Yet, if God wills that it continue until all the wealth piled by the bondsmen's 250 years of unrequited toil shall be sunk, and until every drop of blood drawn with the lash shall be paid by another drawn with the sword, as was said 3,000 years ago, so still it must be said, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Okay. Allow me to just translate that for those of your audience who find it difficult. Yet, if God wills that the war continue until all the wealth piled by the bondsman's 250 years of unrequited toil shall be sunk, that if it requires all the wealth we extracted from the slaves for 250 years to end slavery, if the price is squandering all the wealth we extracted from the slaves for their unrequited toil, and until every drop of blood Drawn with the lash, every drop of blood that the slave master drove from the slave, every drop of blood shall be paid by another 
drawn with the sword, namely now, the deaths that will ensue, the blood, to end slavery. Notice no commas here. Just watch the language. It's breathtaking. As was said 3,000 years ago, so still it must be said, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Slavery is wrong. And if it costs us all the wealth we extracted from that unrequited, unpaid back toil and all the blood that was taken from the slave, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. You know, considering the fact that Lincoln was a racist until you know, well into the beginning of the Civil War, his solution, he said, blacks and white people can't live together. They should be colonized, sent to Haiti or somewhere else. And then to get that from him, it's an amazing sentence. It's construction, it's power, it's depth. And then the sheer content. You know, it's things that, for me, you know, at, the, at this point in my life, and with all the despair I feel and the hopelessness, it still inspires me. You know? John Brown's body, remember, John Brown... He killed innocents at Potawatomi. He was hung for treason. And he was a, a, a subject of, of virulent hatred. And guess what? Within a few years of his death, the Union Army was singing, John Brown's body lies a motoring in the grave. God, the, the God, the stars above in heaven look, look kindly down. His, his, um, his uh, reputation was completely reversed. This religious fanatic, he suddenly metamorphosed into a heroic figure in American history. If you ever want to read something just wonderful, you read Frederick Douglass's eulogy to John Brown. These are thrilling moments. The abolitionists are thrilling moments. And we all, I think, as hard as it's, it is to try to aspire to their standard and to look at the world when we have to make moral decisions. Look at the world through the eyes who have been elevated in our history and who provide great inspiration in very troubled times, which these are.
Thanks again for listening to The Katie Helper Show. If you like the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, we remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. Our show is produced by me, Katie Halper. Brad Bloom is our audio engineer and an associate producer on the show. Our researcher is Joshua Bregman. And our theme song is by the band Cordova. See you next time. Bye.